Welcome back to In the Queue, film conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil. And Spike Lee's vision of feminism is troubling in ancient Greek proportions. Oh, man. The indictments fly right from the get-go. I am Andrew. I'm your other co-host. And when Spike Lee makes a film, he always swings for the fences. Sometimes he connects. Sometimes he does not. But it's always interesting to watch, I find. Always. Isn't that the description of a famous ball player? Oh, maybe. I feel like that's like a, a ball player that's been written about a lot who is not always successful but always swings for the fences and is fun to watch. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, the film we're talking about today is Chirac, the new Spike Lee film, which is an adaptation of the ancient Greek play Lysistrata by Aristophanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, definitely a film that swings for the fences. It's it's a, a quite a pastiche of of ambition and scope. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk yeah. all about it in one second. First, I want to let you all know where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog at www.in-the-q.com. That's the letter Q. On our blog, you'll find all of our shows posted. Um, you can go back to the archive to the very beginning and hear them all. You can participate in the comment section and leave a request for movies you would like us to review. Mm-hmm. We also have a Facebook page. Just search Facebook for In The Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. Once again, all of our shows on Facebook. And if you've used Facebook, you know they have a comment section uh, that you can leave requests. This, sh- they this do. should not be news to anyone. And also, we post videos and other things that have to do with the films that we happen to be discussing that particular time. Lastly, we have an iTunes presence. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. All of our shows will be delivered to you as they come out, twice a week. And you can go back to the very beginning of our archive and listen to the older shows if you so choose to do so. Indeed. Yeah. Um, It's pretty great. So that's the preamble to our discussion today about Chirac. Um, the basic sort of plot line of Lysistrata and of this film uh, concerns war and how war is, is tearing a community of people apart. Um, mm-hmm. In the case of the ancient play, it was the Peloponnesian War that was you know, interminable and going on for far too long, and many people were dying on both sides of the, I guess it was the Spartans and the Greeks uh, were both mm-hmm. dying. And uh, the women of the town basically said that they were fed up and they were going to deny sex uh, for their men so that the men would basically say, well, we can't handle, we can't take this any longer. We have to stop fighting because we're so freaking horny. And that's really the, the instinct that wins out. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Chirac, um, which is the nickname for um, the south side of Chicago, uh, because there was a a huge amount of casualties due to gun violence that actually exceeds the amount of casualties in the Iraq War and in the Afghanistan War. Yeah, in the beginning, there's a series of title cards that tell you that they're like Afghanistan, 2001 to 2015. 3,000 deaths or somewhere just shy of that. Mm-hmm. Iraq, same time frame, something like 5,000 deaths or 4,000 deaths. Mm-hmm. And in Chicago, same time frame, 
7,800 deaths or 7,500 deaths. A lot of deaths. Definitely more yeah. than in the case of these wars. So in this case, um, Lysistrata, whose name is not changed for the Spike Lee film, is a, is a, mm-hmm. a go-getter young woman who uh, imposes this restriction, encouraging all the women in her community to stop having sex with their men so that these two warring gangs who are called in the film the Spartans and the Greeks will mm-hmm. um, will stop fighting each other and 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 there will be no more innocent or or um, or otherwise casualties yes um, Jennifer Hudson has a sort of a small role in the film as a, as a grieving mother whose uh, child uh, was tragically killed in, in a in the middle of a gunfight um, and um, she actually she she kind of straddles the two sort of uh, camps of of groups of women in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. The movie is divided into you've got these young, highly sexualized, beautiful women who are denying you know sex to their men. And then you've mm-hmm. got sort of this group of older, sexless, grieving mothers who are, you know, not considered to be on the same sort of level of desirability, according to the filmmakers. And their, mm-hmm. their function is mostly to tug at your heartstrings. And Jennifer Hudson is, is, is the much younger one uh, of the mothers. But um, I thought that... My comment in the beginning about the the Spike Lee's vision of feminism is kind of problematic to me because um, throughout the whole film, the the young women of of Chirac are kind of like are just as I said they're highly sexualized and they dress extremely like with very tight short shorts and revealing tops and they mm-hmm. they 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 kind of like. During their group meetings, they dance in very kind of sexualized ways, and um, yet at the same time, if you look at the uh, like the the art for the IMDb page, the 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 posters that the um, the feminist the so called I guess feminist groups are toting are saying things like "I am a woman" and and peace and and it just seems to me that the the, the 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 nature of how Spike Lee was portraying these women is that they were mostly just sexual beings. Well, uh, yeah, I can see what you're saying, but I also uh, I could see how that could be kind of flipped on its head. Uh, in that, this is a film about men who are uh, so wrapped up, and especially in the in the character of Chirac himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the the rapper that Nick Cannon portrays in this film. Um, the, the men are so concerned with this sort of uh, idealized machismo kind of image. Of themselves. Right, of themselves. They, they see themselves as uh, the masters of their own domain. And that what comes with that is violence and drugs and alcohol and sex. Those are those are the the key elements to living the good life, as far as they're concerned. So their, um, I think it's as much their objectification of those women that is then 
sort of subsequently turned on its head in a way when they claim their own uh, their own power over the men by denying them sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, this is this is uh, this does go back all the way to Aristophanes. I mean, this is the 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 source material that this is based upon. It's um, it's not too far off the mark in terms of the structure of it. It isn't, and uh, I, but I actually did ask myself though. In in that case, do do Spike Lee and his co-writer Kevin Wilmot have a responsibility to update or revise this play for the for the contemporary time? That's interesting. That's a whole other conversation that we could probably have. I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day, talking to them about the idea of whether uh, art has a moral responsibility to. Uh, the world that it exists in. Mm -hmm. I was arguing that I do not think that it does. I don't think art has any moral responsibility at all. I think the only responsibility of art is to the person creating the art and we can judge it once it has been created, but the art itself doesn't have a responsibility to us as a culture or as a people. Um, Well, do you feel that art, if it does not have responsibility to the, the people or the culture, do you think that the art can do damage to a culture? I think it. I think it can, and I think that in many cases and in many historical uh, uh, moments, that's exactly the reason that art has existed and endured is that it has done damage to the status quo. It has, it has shaken the culture, and just because at one particular point in time we're saying that this is good, this is bad doesn't mean that people aren't allowed to have their own opinions or put forth their own artistic vision for something. And that artistic vision, I think, can be judged once it is created, but I don't think that uh, we should offhand be saying that art should conform to a predetermined set of rules that we have, as a society, already decided upon before it gets created. I think that that's dangerous. Well, you're talking about censorship. I am. Yeah. I mean, there's been, of course, many, many examples of films over the history of the cinema that have really sort of challenged this idea of censorship and and, and social responsibility, like Clockwork Orange is the first one that I think of, where, mm-hmm. you know, that's a film where there were copycat crimes that came out when the film was released, so much so that Stanley Kubrick himself assumed the responsibility and withdrew his film from English cinemas. Yeah, because, yeah. Cause, for... 40 years. Yeah, until until he died, right? Yeah, thir- 30 years. Yeah, he he it was actually reinstated after he died. Uh because these yeah. because of these copycat crimes that were in uh in in England at the time of the film's release. So that kind of you got to just kind of pause and take a minute to admire Kubrick who creates a film which has no responsibility to society or to the status quo, but when these harmful effects result, he takes the responsibility and pulls his own film out of the country. Certainly, but, uh, certainly. Um, but I, I don't think that that's always necessary. I think that some of the most subversive and deviant art has been the art that has moved art forward, basically, and moved society forward. Quite frankly, um, I'm not saying that this is necessarily about <laughs> that movie. <laughs> well, he slightly may have thought that it was, but. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, I mean, the, the thing that I find interesting about Chirac and about most of Spike Lee's films, and the reason that I said what I did in my intro, which is that he's always interesting to watch, even if he doesn't connect 
on these sort of, you know, just massive swings for the fences. I was reminded very much of his movie Bamboozled while I was watching this, yeah. which is uh, a film that he made in the late 90s that uh, was uh, not particularly well received um, and was kind of a, a, a mess of a film, but uh, but had great ideas in it and had a really interesting kind of thrust to it and a very cool, I thought, resolution. Um, and I thought that he had something to say. And on that point, I think that Spike Lee, I mean, he makes polemicals, right? I mean, that's essentially what his films are. Uh, They are an argument for something. And this one is, of course, an argument against gun violence and gang violence and the idea of this sort of macho way of behaving being the, the ideal to which young black men aspire. Mm -hmm. Like this is, these, these are all, this is all wrapped up in this film. Uh, but it's just, I, I, I found it, I didn't find it to be offensive in the same way you did or, or distasteful in sort of the the portrayal of, of, uh, of feminism or his, his idea of what feminism is. I just found it to be very uneven and, uh, strangely paced yeah it's a pacing is a good term to bring up because it's the pacing is up and down and sideways and to the left i mean especially in the second half of the movie where uh we're being yanked into broad comic territory then yanked back to melodramatic yeah dramatic you know sad territory and it's just i felt like the whole movie was just an utter mess i felt like I don't even think that he really had much to say other than just these fantasies that he had that were inspired by this play. I mean, the, the movie has well, the movie has one or two I think awesome scenes that I think were just successful, yeah. just purely successful scenes. But then uh, for the most part, it just seemed like um he was he, I would compare him to Fellini in the sense that <laughs> late period Spike Lee, he he had what amounts to be uh, total creative control. Uh, yeah. He let his imagination run wild, and and he really overindulged in this vision that he had. Um, and I just felt like it, it it was not boring to watch, but at the same no, at the same no, time, no. I just kind of felt like it was just a uh, incoherent. Uh, yeah, yeah. I um, I wonder. There are a couple things that I wonder about with this. Uh, one is the fact that it's this film was an Amazon Studios film. Yeah, this is one of the first films to be released in movie theaters that was created by Amazon, mm-hmm. the website Amazon.com. They have moved into the television game last year. The year, well, actually, a couple, a few years ago, but they just started garnering Emmy non- nominations for shows like Transparent and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they've moved into the, uh, movie realm, which I'm very excited about because they're bankrolling Terry Gilliam's next film. Uh, but, uh, I, I wonder, I mean, it, it didn't seem like there was any shortage of budget necessarily or anything. I think he creatively hit exactly what he wanted to hit. Um, but I wonder if the newness of that might've had some, some influence on his normal filmmaking process. Although to be fair, I, you know, I do look back at movies like Bamboozled and I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. 
what I'm seeing from Spike Lee here, I've seen before from Spike Lee. Uh, and on your point about it not having anything to say, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that it does have something to say. I just think that it says it so haphazardly uh, that it, it, it almost at points embeds the message in one scene or one long rant. And, and I'll make a very quick comparison here. The 25th Hour, which is probably my favorite Spike Lee film mm-hmm. or my second favorite behind Do the Right Thing, uh-huh. one of those two. Um, the 25th Hour, which is a spectacular film, has a very incongruous sequence in it that comes about midway through or maybe a little bit less where he's looking in the bathroom mirror and he starts to go on a tirade about all the people of New York and how much he hates them and how much he hates other human beings. And it goes through this sort of laundry list of different types of people and different types of ethnic groups and different types of places that they're living. And it's this kind of misanthropic rant that seems partially motivated by the character, but also seems to be totally removed from the rest of the film in a very strange way. Well, it sounds like stylistically it's definitely removed. And, and oh, yeah. The, 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 the tone and the, the way that the story is told up to that point. Yeah, and in this film, I felt the same thing happened with John Cusack's preacher giving a sermon about this, uh, this murdered child of Jennifer Hudson. Right. He gives this long sermon and it's it's sort of a break. It's a major break in the pacing up to that point. The pacing up to that point had been very sharp and very, uh, mm-hmm. uh, very it, it sort of popped. You know, there was there was a lot of kinetic energy in in the in the film. And then it slows really, really slow down. Mm-hmm. And it goes through this whole segment where it, it's basically a rant upon the the current political environment, the current world that we're living in, you know, on all the problems they're in. And then it just goes back to the movie right after that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it serves a purpose within the, the, the narrative, but at the same time, it's also, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Well, yeah. Although I would count that that scene with, with John Cusack giving the long sermon is, is one of the one or two awesome parts of the film for me anyway. Yeah. I, yeah, it's um, a great scene. I, uh, but but as yeah, it's the kind of scene that you can carve out and you know put on your mantle and enjoy on its own. <laughs> it may not. It, it may, as you say, interrupt the flow of the actual film. But what I was talking about with the second half of the film is that the tone does change and it it becomes much yeah. more of a surrealist extravaganza. Um, it, it's like yeah, no yeah, holds, nothing makes any no holds, logical right, sense anymore. No holds yeah. barred. You know, let's have a let's have a flashback of the mayor and his wife, and let's insert that here, and let's do this and this, and it, it yeah, and let's like why why can't the the this massive police force go in and arrest these seventy five unarmed women who are in this building without any hostages? Yeah, it's like he's just he's having a field day. You can you can get yeah. the idea that that Spike Lee is having a, a lot of fun, um, but. And that kind of, that it is kind of fun, but at the same time, it's just kind of like uh, treading water dramatically. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. it doesn't really advance things, but it's kind of amusing to watch. But so yeah. but he's he's but he does that for the the whole like last hour, and what I think Spike Lee does that I enjoy the most is something that I found that this film had in common with do the right thing, believe it or not. Um, I, Spike Lee has a really good way to grasp what's going on in the neighborhood of his characters. 
He yeah. has a really good sense about what's on people's minds. Uh, what are people concerned about in this community? Uh, he even employs street graffiti in this film to sort of show what the subtext, the subtext is of what's on everybody's minds. And that's all great. The subsect, <laughs> no pun intended. Oh, again, oh, Sigmund Freud, paging Dr. Freud. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but, and so that kind of stuff is really what this movie is about. It's about the the story. And mm-hmm. uh, the story, I haven't read the, the source material. I've perused it so I could sound like a bit more of a expert <laughs> for this podcast. But um, But I just feel like, he really does do a great job at the the drama and sort of the realism of it. But but even even though the realism is still heightened, it's still comedic at times. It's still yeah, exaggerated, yeah. but um, but it really is 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 good. And I just kind of felt like, you know, Samuel L. Jackson as the narrator. I mean, he's almost a parody of himself at this point when he does this. And well, yeah, yeah. I mean, when we've seen him do, selling shilling Capital One credit cards and and doing sort of the same shtick, yeah, it, you know, Capital One, it, it kind of loses some of its uh, its charm. But I I I still love what I mean. It's impossible not to like watching Sam Jackson. He really blurs the line between like self parody and just like earnestness. <laughs> like, yeah, take it either way, and it'll still work. That uh, movie formula. Formula 51 was it that crazy movie with Robert Carlyle that he did that was like a it was like a movie of of Samuel L. Jackson's self parody and it was insane it was like somebody had cracked open a madman's skull and let a movie out <laughs> yeah and and uh but I I sort of found myself asking the question though is is um you know in the in the climactic scene and this isn't really giving away too much but uh, Lisa Strata, who's played by Tayona Paris in this film, has a you know showdown with um, mm-hmm. Chirac, who's played by Nick Cannon, and um, the whole the whole film, the, the the young women of this community have been holding out for the sake of this good cause. They've been holding out so that they're not going to sleep with their men because they want the men to change their violent ways, mm-hmm. and then one of the men proposes that they have like a, a, a standoff in this bed and they, and they're going to, they're going to do it. And whoever comes first loses like right. whoever, uh, whoever side comes first loses. And she's like, all right, let's do it. And I'm like, she would never agree to that. Like she's, that totally flies in the face of everything well, they're fighting for. Except that it was all a ruse to get Cyclops in there played by Wesley Snipes and his whole crew of injured gang members to show him, the error of his ways that doesn't work, which is, which is actually one of my sort of weird uh, issues with the film is that the, the entire kind of uh, conclusion of the film is very strange um, in the way that it, it, it sort of resolves itself. Mm-hmm. I found that Nick Cannon's performance was uh, when he had to get dramatic I loved him up until that point, but when he had to get dramatic, it was weak. In fact, the people in the in the audience that I was with when I went to see this film laughed hysterically when he started crying. They were like, oh, look at him. He's trying to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a very um, – it, it didn't seem 
even in the end, he didn't seem to be repentant or or uh, you know okay with it. He has some lines to the effect of everybody else needs to come clean now that I've come clean and you know mm-hmm. save your soul or whatever. But it, it doesn't ring true. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised that you feel that way because I think that this movie kind of eschews real drama in favor of showboating and and set pieces and and wacky concepts and and um yeah i mean it's it i was never really moved i was moved to laughter uh, multiple times in the film uh i yeah. just mentioned quickly there's a great scene with david patrick kelly as uh the inexplicable general king kong who's a very diminutive general who, uh, wearing World <laughs> War Two era, right. He's World War One even maybe, yeah, Patton, Hel- Patton kind of, yeah, and uh, and he, uh, Paris, um, I mean, it serves it serves the story actually. What the way things play, pan out, if I can, recall, yeah, because yeah. she's she seizes the armory in Chicago that that King Kong is is guarding, but uh, she seduces him into thinking that they're going to do it, and then he rips off his clothing in the style of a male stripper and he's wearing like a little tiny shorts that have like the American flag on them or something. It's a Confederate flag. Is it the Confederate? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it was a Confederate flag. And he had a Confederate flag above his bed and, you know. Yeah, and then, uh, but really the the kudos goes to David Patrick Kelly in that case. (laughs) Well, I thought, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's one of these sort of paradoxes because I watched the film and... I think that everybody is, for the most part, turning in really excellent performances. Angela Bassett's really great in this film. Mm-hmm. Wesley Snipes is great in it. Teona Paris is fantastic, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Cusack is great. Um, Dave Chappelle in a very small role. Very funny. Um, uh, pretty much the entire crew of sort of secondary women and men are all really interesting to watch. But... Uh, but it's like they're all playing in different movies or <laughs> or you know they're they're playing at different levels and i understand to some extent having jennifer hudson be kind of a like a, a more attempted at grounding force although i i didn't buy her yeah. grief i didn't i didn't think she turned in a very good performance but uh the 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 inconsistencies in for instance the the kind of performance that people were turning in in the film you know, as you described, David Patrick Kelly's performance is so cartoonish and bizarre <laughs> in in the rest of this film yes. that it it I mean it just I I can appreciate it on one level making fun of this sort of uh, closeted racist you know uh, Confederate Southerner who secretly fetishizes the object of his hate. Mm-hmm. You know that I can understand why you'd want to sort of make him a, a ridiculous buffoon, but at the same time, it doesn't really. It doesn't really. There's no real punch to it. It's just kind of a, a sight gag for a moment, and then it's done. I think we should acknowledge Spike Lee's writing partner, Kevin Wilmot, oh, who yeah. uh, who made a film a couple of years ago called The Confederate States of America. Oh that yeah, actually got some acknowledgement at area film festivals in the country and became kind yeah. of a cult hit because that movie is a, a comedy about what if the Confederacy the Confederacy had actually won the Civil War. Yeah, so yeah. it's possible that 
my favorite scene in Chirac was the creation of somebody <laughs> other than Spike Lee. Yeah, yeah. But even so, Spike Lee's directing it. And yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He takes it, you know, I mean, there is a wonderful moment, I thought, in that scene when uh, Tayona Paris goes and rips the Confederate flag off the wall, throws it to the ground, and then steps on it slowly in this kind of wonderful moment. Like, I thought that was a great, that was another one of those, like, polemic moments where, where you're like, ooh. <laughs> This is, oh, Spike Lee's relishing this. This is great. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it, it, we could talk about this all day, about the sort of inconsistencies and the mm-hmm. kind of craziness. What, Wesley Snipes' character being, uh, on the one hand, terrifying, but on the same time, having this, like, hilarious tick where he giggles this like high-pitched giggle all the time and that's and that scene when he was in the in the club with dave chappelle and dave chappelle was complaining about there being no strippers because they were all on strike uh was hilarious i thought wesley snipes was so funny in that scene and uh but then at the same time uh he's supposed to be feared as this you know he's supposed to be the other gang's chirac Uh You know, and uh, and it, it it just it's strange how it it doesn't fully read. You know. Well, this movie is interestingly. IMDb says it's a drama. It doesn't even acknowledge that as a comedy, but it's very much a comedy. Uh, well, and so is Lysistrata. Lysistrata oh, yeah. is one of the great the great Greek comedies. Yeah, and Spike Lee has flat out said in interviews that I want you to think about gun control when you watch this movie. I want I yeah. want us to have a conversation about gun control, not rewriting the Second Amendment, but gun control, and that's really what he wants us all to take away from it. Um, yeah. It's a, it's kind of a celebration. I mean, he's celebrating he, while he's making this movie, um, mm-hmm. but it just seems kind of out of control to me for for most of it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I still think it's it's worth watching. I think <laughs> I think. I think Spike Lee is always so much fun to watch. I think his films are just they're just fun, even when they're gobbledygook. Mm. Okay. Uh, and and I there was a part of me that really enjoyed this. There's a part of me that just got bored with the with the uh, unevenness of it. Um, overall, I don't think it's a great film. I don't think it even ranks in his top films by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But uh, still a very interesting film to watch. And if you're a Spike Lee fan or if you're an ancient Greek uh, <laughs> drama fan, it's 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 worth it at least for the to satisfy your curiosity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, OK. Fair enough. Um, I sounds like Andrew is, is recommending the film. I kind of recommend it, too, I suppose. It's it's an interesting excursion to, to, to yeah. take. Um, yeah. Either way, uh, it'll definitely you know give you something to talk about with other people who've seen the film. Um, yeah, that's our show yeah. about Chirac. Um, stay tuned for our next episode, which is going to be a listener's choice, a film called Buzzard. Yeah, which um, is a came out this year, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's recommended by Jeff, a returning champion, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, we I don't know a hell of a lot about it, but. Uh, we're gonna watch it. Some of us sounds good. Some of us have probably already watched it. Some of us have. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, join us for that, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>